Good morning. How are you? Worn down. <laughs> well, day of rest today. Okay, good morning everyone. It's good to see you. You know, the marriage feast of the Lamb in heaven doesn't end, so you can party as long as you'd like, but the 4th of July does, so I'm happy to see that you are the ones that made it into church. Uh, Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O Lord, grant that the course of this world may be so peaceably ordered by your governance that your church may joyfully serve you in all godly quietness through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All godly quietness. (laughs) Okay. Uh, the verse of the week, Matthew 10, 32 to 33. Let's speak this together. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. All right. Whoever confesses, I will also confess. Uh, What does it mean to confess? Okay, to speak, yes, but to speak what? What you believe. Okay. Own up to your wrongdoings. Okay, well, yes. So this is in terms of confession and absolution. The confession of sins is a different kind of confession than how the word is being used here. It is speaking forth the truth, or to speak forth, but it is, it, it's something more than just that. Because the, the sense of confession in like how we say, we confess our faith with the creed. We confess our sins, that is we bring our sins and we confess them to the Father, uh, but confession as a statement, as in the creeds, uh, is speaking forth that which you believe, speaking forth the truth. Now, in the language of the church, confession is, according to the the Greek of it, homo logeo, homo is the same, logeo is speaking of words. So, really, it's same speech. Confession is same speech. It's repeating the things that have been spoken to you. So when Jesus says, I am Lord, the confession of the church, as in the doctrinal statement of the church, is Jesus is Lord. It's speaking back what God has already said. So uh, that ties in here in a few senses. The first is obviously the spoken word. So... Whoever confesses with their mouth before men, as in, I believe in God the Father Almighty, in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and in the Holy Spirit. Confessing 
same speak. The words that he has given you about himself, you speak forth. But it's more than just that. You confess also in deed. Let us confess in deed and in truth. So, so there is, it doesn't say words. Now, words are inherent, but it's, it also means that there's more. Therefore, whoever confesses by their words and by their actions before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Now, for those who are confessing him, my Father is also who? Our Father. Our Father. Yes, to my Father and to your Father. To our Father. And that's, this is an interesting thing because here, my father, to those who deny, is not our father. And if you want to do one word, it's his father. So here it is, the parentheses, this is just what we say, his father, but it's our father. But if you're not with him, you're the outsider who says, well, that's not my father. That's his father. I don't want anything to do with him. Okay? Uh, Here's the other thing to consider. When you're confessing the Lord, whatever you do unto these, the least of my brethren, you do unto me. If you confess and act uh, as if Jesus is not Lord, as if Jesus has not done anything, and you do that before men or to men, it's the same as rejecting Christ to his face. So, those who are confessing Christ are those who are in him and those who are with him. Whoever denies me, well, who are those who will deny him? That's the question. They're the ones that look at him and say, I don't really want anything to do with you. I don't want anything to do with you. Uh, I would rather live on my own. So, which basically then gives you the sense of the entire verse, which is this. If you tell Jesus you want nothing to do with him, he'll make sure to give the Father the message. Now, it's a scary thing to you to think of that because you want to be with the Father. You want to be with Him, to be united with Him. Uh, but in a sense, in this life, it's a comfort to those who want to be separated to know that if they really, really, really want to be separated, then they will be separated. And they say, well, fine. That's what I want. God will give me what I want. Um, I think I, I said this, I don't remember if it was in Bible class or not, but, the, but God will, but you'll always get the God you want. If you want a God who, who doesn't care about you and who will cut you off, then you'll get him. So if you deny Christ before men, which is in a sense denying Christ to his very face, then he says, okay, I'll make sure the Father gets the message. Okay? Uh, very good. Let's well, let's speak this again. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Yes, what does God's word say to husbands? Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life 
so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Okay, very good. Husbands, love your wives. What does it mean that you love? How do you know how to love? How do you know what it looks like to love your wife? Because Christ has loved the church. So if you want to know how you are to love your wife, you say, well, I, well the Lord tells me I'm supposed to love my wife, but I don't, know what I'm, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how to do that. Well, you do, because he's told you how. He's shown you how. As Christ has loved the church, and as Christ continues to love the church, so too are you to love your wife. And do not be harsh with them. You're called to be kind, loving, gentle, caring, protecting, uh, you're not called to be the fix me a turkey pot pie. That's not allowed of you. Uh, and in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Now, this is a good word, but it's not... <coughs> and you should be considerate, so don't you know, throw your dirty laundry on the floor. Be considerate and pick up after yourself. But it doesn't just mean that. It's not like the scripture says, now you know, she works really hard, so, you know, don't... <coughs> Throw her a bone and, cl and clean up after yourself. That's not what it is. What does it mean to be considerate? Treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Now this is the stumbling block for many people because of the word weaker. So people see this, well, we're a weaker partner, and women say, well, I'm not the weaker partner. I am offended by this. And men say, ha, you're the weaker partner. I knew it. Uh, that means I get to be the stronger partner. And you're both wrong. Uh, the worst is the world around you that gets a hold of verses like this and strips them away and says, look, Christians are bigoted and they hate women because this is why. Well, it's not true. What does it mean that the woman is the weaker partner? It doesn't mean, you know, this is not a contribution to the age-old debate about who wins a wrestling match, who's physically stronger, a man or a woman. Well, the weaker partner is a reference not to the strength of will or of character or of quality of a woman as a woman, but instead as one who is not the head. The husband is the head of the household, the wife is not. Therefore, she is the weaker partner, not because of anything in herself, but by virtue of the vocation. Uh, so don't belittle or steamroll your wife. She's not less than you. Her vocation is weaker than yours. And you see this here, as the weaker partner and as heirs with you. It's not a, it's not a question of the wife being weaker by virtue of the fact that she is a woman or the fact that she's a wife or anything ridiculous like that, because he, she's an heir with you, husbands, which means that as much as you are an heir, so is she. There is equality in Christ. As St. Paul writes in Galatians 3, there's neither male nor female, nor Jew nor Gentile nor uh, Greek, no, but all are one in Christ. So there, there is equality in the persons. Husband and wife are equal according to the persons, both as redeemed, but not according to station, not according to the vocation of father and the vocation of mother. doesn't mean that one is better or worse than the other. They are um, complementary. Husbands are not greater than their wives, but the wives are not 
the head. So, be considerate with your wives. <laughs> Fourth of July festivities were hard on her. She's tired. Um, yeah, so be, cons be considerate of your wives. Confess Christ to your wives in your word and in your deed. Give them the love, the honor, and the respect that they deserve. It's sort of like saying sh being chivalrous isn't about thinking that women are beneath you. I don't hold a door for a woman because I think a woman is too weak to open the door. I hold the door open for a woman as a confession of the fact that I think that is an individual who is higher than myself, uh, worthy of honor and respect. It, it's sort of like that. So don't get caught up in the language of weaker partner and assume that this is some kind of a misogynistic slam against women, because it isn't. Because you are, with uh, him, an heir, <coughs> together as equals, okay? Questions? Very good. This oh. kind of come from back when girls and women were not uh, thought of as having any of the estate, so to speak. No, because it's not cultural. That's, what, that's the point I'm trying to make. This isn't a cultural statement. It's a theological statement. So to say that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female because you are all one in Christ as equals, nor slave nor free. So a free man is no better than a slave and a slave is no better than a free man. Everyone is equal. A man is no better than a woman. A woman is no better than a man. They're all equals together. That was a revolutionary concept even in this day, uh, in the day of the Bible, just as it sort of is now. Because the temptation is always that someone has to be greater than the other. But the whole point of this is to say that you're equals. Husband and wife are equals. Husband, you have the responsibility as the head of the household to care for your wife. She doesn't have the responsibility that you do. Take your responsibility seriously and care for her as Christ cares for the church. And we'll talk, actually, uh, Seminarian Kinney will, will have the stuff about wives um, next time. But it's the same. Receive your, your husband and follow him and care for him as he looks out for you and protects you and guides you as the head of the household. But it's complementary, husband and a wife together. It's, uh, men and women are different, but they are complementary. Okay? Uh, children, you may, you may depart for Sunday school. So, no. I mean, that's the short answer. Nancy, no, it's, it, it doesn't have to do with culture. In fact, this is kind of a countercultural idea that a woman would be a co-heir with you. Why? Because a woman isn't an heir. It's the, the son who is the heir, which is, I mean, kind of the case here. The woman is not an heir in and of herself, but neither is the man. Neither is the husband, because you're an heir in Christ. You have the sonship of Christ. You receive the inheritance of Christ because you are 
in him. Your identity as an individual doesn't matter when you are in Christ because Christ becomes your primary identity. So that when the Father looks at you, he doesn't say, hmm, well, that Nancy Peters lady tried her best, but, you know, she was still a sinner and I didn't, it just came short of that mark. He doesn't say that. He says, ah, I see my son. And because of that, you are an heir because you wear the wedding garment. Stay here in the hall and feast sumptuously for as long as you would like and partake of my celebration because you wear the wedding garment. Not because you are who you are who have been taken in as a vagrant from the highways and the byways, but because who you are made to be in Christ. This is a pet peeve of mine too. Uh, and I know this is sort of an evolution of tangents here, but the idea that the Lord accepts you the way you are is a false, uh, it's a false idea. The Lord doesn't accept you the way you are. That's sort of the whole point of Christianity, actually. He doesn't accept you the way you are. If he accepted you the way you are, his son wouldn't have come to die for you to make you something different. Think about that. You are transformed in Christ into something greater than what you were before, something different than what you were before, and a different identity is placed on you than who you were before. So if God accepts you the way you are, Christ's death doesn't mean anything. There's no point in any kind of a transformation. There's no point in trying to strive after holiness because nothing matters because you just, well, the Lord accepts me for who I am. I'm a big sinner and the Lord doesn't care. But he does care, which is the whole point of why he sent his son to you in the first place. It's not about the Lord accepting you for who you are, but the Lord making you acceptable. The Lord transforms you from what is unacceptable into what is acceptable. And that's an even greater comfort because you know that you couldn't transform yourself. And you know that before God, I'm unacceptable. If God accepted you the way you are, then Moses wouldn't be afraid when he sees the angel of the Lord. Then Joshua wouldn't be afraid when he sees the commander of the angel of the Lord. They wouldn't take off their shoes. They wouldn't bow down in penitence. They wouldn't don sackcloth and ashes. But they do understand that the Lord doesn't accept them, which is why they do it. I'm a sinner. It's like Isaiah. Woe, to, woe is... Uh, unto me. I'm in the presence of the Lord. I know who I am, and I know that the Lord can't possibly accept me the way that I am. And the comfort is in that, yes, the Lord can't accept you the way you, that you are, but he will make you acceptable to him because he loves you that much. <clears throat> he doesn't leave it to you and say, These are, this is the benchmark for admittance into my wedding hall, and as long as you better yourself and make yourself presentable to me, then you're in. He says, Listen, this is the benchmark, and I, but I, and I love you. I want you here, and I've seen you. You're trying so hard. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to leave the wedding hall and come out to you, and I'm going to make sure that you can follow these rules and that you can meet this benchmark by my hand because I, I want you in here so badly. I'll come and make you acceptable. Yes? Yes. Well, I maybe take back my yes, though. I don't know, does God love you as you are, or does God love you for who you are? 
Yes, that's even better, that he loves you in spite of who you are, which is why he makes you better, because he loves you, okay? Very good. We got to get rolling here because we need to talk about a hymn. We don't have the leeway of uh, wibbly-wobbly, anything we want to talk about summer Bible class today because we actually have a hymn, the new hymn of the week. There's a lot to say about this one. Um, Jesus, thy boundless love to me. There was a handout in the back. If you have your hymnal, it's 683. Uh you may or may not be familiar with this hymn because this hymn is from the TLH, but it's a slightly different form. It's lacking a few stanzas, and it's a completely different tune. So you might recognize the text of it, and we'll talk a little bit about this. So this is a hymn by Paul Gerhard, who was a Lutheran pastor during the 17th century. Uh, Paul Gerhard is an excellent hymn writer. He was an excellent pastor. He was an excellent theologian. And to those points, uh, there's a hymnologist. This is old. This is from 1980, or excuse me, 1892. But there was a dictionary of hymnology that was published in London. And this hymnologist said, Gerhard ranks next to Luther as the most gifted and popular hymn writer of the Lutheran Church. And it's true. And by this point, you know that I am not someone who's going to shy away from telling you exactly what I think about hymns, whether that's for the better or for the worse. <laughs> and I will say this, Lutherans sometimes feel like they have to have an allegiance to Martin Luther, especially in, as it pertains to his hymnody. Uh, and it seems as though Lutherans have a guilt that they're saddled with. Like, you couldn't possibly say that anybody was better than Luther, because that would be, well, I mean, we are the Lutheran church, right? You can't say there was a better hymn writer than Luther, because he's just the best. He's He's the one that made all the great hymns of the Lutheran Church. Ah, but here's the fact of the matter. Paul Gerhard actually is a better hymn writer than Luther. Luther did a lot of really neat things with hymns and with music. He was a musician. He wrote some very good hymns. But Paul Gerhard is much better. Uh, his hymns strike different chords than Luther's do. Uh, in a way, his hymns strike more true, dead center in the heart, than do Luther's. Paul Gerhard's hymns are kind of like arrows, fiery arrows that are shot like a sniper that hit you right where they need to hit you. Luther's hymns are kind of like big hammers that hit you everywhere and hope that they hit you exactly where they need to hit you. And there is a time and a place for both, because sometimes, frankly, you need to be hit by a big hammer. Uh, but other times you need to be hit with the precision that gets you right where you need to be got. So, uh, now, and this is, this is my personal opinion. I believe Paul Gerhard to be a better hymn writer than Luther, and he was definitely more prolific than Luther. Uh, but you see here, at the very least, he ranks 
next to Luther as the most gifted and popular hymn writer. Gerhard also uh, was somebody who was devoted to the Christian life. That's something that you'll see a lot in his hymnody. It, it, it's very centered around how the Christian lives and what are the realities that a Christian faces in life and, and how do I live as a Christian in a life that's full of turmoil, sin, and strife. Uh, so you get hymns like, Entrust Your Days and Burdens. Get, Entrust Your Days and Burdens to the Lord's Almighty Care. Things like that. Uh, when I go to deathbeds, I sing hymns, and I have a little... I've got the LSB in just a tiny little book that has no music, just the text of the hymns. And I just sit there with this tiny little book and I sing hymns. And about two-thirds of the hymns that I end up singing are actually Paul Gerhard hymns. You'll find a whole lot of them in the hope and comfort and redeemer sections of the hymnal. Very prolific. Uh, but he, he was very focused on living as a Christian as well and was noted in his communities for that. That boy, he's, this is sort of a, I don't know, I wouldn't say better Christian, but they say he's a, He's unique. He really, really works hard to live the Christian life the way he preaches to us that we ought. And it comes forth in his hymnody. Here's something I really love. This came from his testament to his son. So when he knew he was dying on his deathbed, he wrote a letter to his son, basically uh, his, the last bit of advice that he wanted his son to have. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. If you can find it, you should read the whole, the whole testament. But here's just an excerpt. Pray diligently, study something honorable, live peacefully, serve honestly, and remain unmoved in your faith and confession. If you do this, you too will one day die and depart from this world willingly, joyfully, and blessedly. Amen. Now isn't that something? I mean, that's Christian, that's Christian advice right there. Uh, and that's sort of the tone of who Paul Gerhard was as a pastor uh, and as a theologian. While his hymns strike you with sniper's accuracy, somehow they do it gently as well. A fatherly hand that's there telling you what you need to hear but guiding you with care. Um, I, part of the reason why he is such a good hymn writer is because Paul Gerhardt experienced many tribulations in his life. And you'll find that some of the greatest theologians, some of the greatest poets of the faith, some of the greatest hymn writers are also the ones who suffered the most. Because there's something about suffering that really forms you in a way that study doesn't. In fact, there's a really famous quote from Luther where he says that it isn't experience or study that really forms a theologian. It is trials and suffering that form a theologian. You don't really know who you are until the rubber meets the road and you're faced with suffering. When everything has been stripped away from you, only then can you turn around and say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. So for those who have experienced incredible hardship, there also comes with it an incredible clarity where you understand 
in that moment who God is for you, what he does for you, even in the midst of the suffering that you face. So some of the greatest hymnody, not even just from uh, Gerhard, but from other older theologians through the time of the church's life, have been formed by suffering. And in fact, so great was Gerhard's suffering that uh, on his memorial painting in, uh, not in Berlin, it was at his last church, I think in Lübeck, uh, there's an inscription, Lüben, excuse me, Lüben, yeah, Lüben, there's a description under his portrait, and it says, Theologos in Cribro Satanae Versatus. Paul Gerhard, a theologian sifted in the sieve of Satan. Yeah, say that again. A theologian sifted in the sieve of Satan. Hmm. And I think that's, it's apt, it's short, but it tells you everything you need to know about Paul Gerhard. A theologian sifted in the sieve of Satan. And uh, here's his response. This is a quote from him to some of the suffering that he endured. Um, this is in a response to uh, suffering in Berlin, where he was a pastor. He, as with many of the Lutheran hymn writers that we've already looked at, he faced uh, trials on the doctrinal side of things as well as in his own life. And doctrinally, what it was was the inf influence of Calvinism that started coming into the regions of Germany. So the electors, as the Lutheran electors were dying out, the new electors were not Lutherans, they were Calvinists. So when they became electors, they said, no more of these Lutheran churches here, now you're going to teach this. And the really staunch Orthodox Lutherans said, we can't do that. And because they said they couldn't teach something that they believed to be false, uh, the government came down upon them. They were kicked out of churches and exiled and things like that. So what happened to Gerhard in Berlin was very similar. He wouldn't teach what they wanted him to teach because he said it was not true to the faith. So they were kicking him out of his church and, and getting rid of him. And his response was this, this is only a small affliction, but I am also willing and ready to seal with my blood the evangelical truth, and like my namesake, St. Paul, to offer my neck to the sword. Oh, isn't that good? Isn't that good? In a sense, that's what every pastor ought to be saying when they are ordained. Because when you are ordained, you are becoming a sheep that is slowly being led to the slaughter, and you don't get to fight. So slowly but surely, as the world changes around you, you have to be the one that says, I will not give up what I have, and I will willingly put my head on the block for the cause of evangelical truth. And when you look at the apostles, that is the model that you follow. Really, all Christians do that. I mean, look at your confirmation. You two are most recently confirmed. And what is part of your confirmation <clears throat> vows? What's one of the things that I ask you? Will you uphold 
will you suffer all things, including death itself, rather than turn away? And you say, yeah, <laughs> well, sure, I can do that. This is, this is why the response uh, there is so important, that it isn't just, yeah, you know what, that sounds pretty good to me. I, okay, I'll suffer death, sure. It's, yes, by the grace of God. Because you won't do it on your own. You won't do it. But by the grace of God, he will give you the strength to endure. That you have an, an otherworldly, extraworldly aid that is infused into you like, like some kind of blood transfusion. That now you have something you didn't have before. A strength and a fortitude of faith and of will to stand firm in the truth even should death come to steal you away. Luther said, you stay Indeed, that is, I mean, that's another example. I, it, un, unless I am convinced that what I am speaking according to Scripture is false, I can't speak otherwise. Uh, I'll, I'll take on an alias and hide in a castle and keep on writing what I'm writing. Yes, so... That's a little bit of background about the man, Paul Gerhard. Uh, this hymn, the German is, O Jesu Christ, meine schönstes Licht. Good? Yeah. I'm just, uh, I practiced the pronunciation because I knew I would have at least one critic. <laughs> <laughs> so. Something beautiful there, Shane. Say it again. O Jesu Christ, meine schönstes Licht. Which we translate, Jesus, thy boundless love to me. But that's, that's just the original title. Uh, it, it, it wasn't original text. Uh, it was text that was based on a prayer in a book called the Parad Paradise Gartlein, uh, which is just the Paradise Garden or the Garden of Eden, uh, which was a devotional book by a theologian named Johann Arndt, which is, he was another, there's a lot to say about Johann Arndt, but it's, tangential, we don't need to talk about that. But so he, he has this prayer that he really liked from this devotional book, so he transformed it into a hymn and took some creative liberties. And then it was published in 15, or in uh, 1650 somethings. In the 15, 1650s, there's a book by Johann Kruger, who you'll also see a lot of in here mostly tunes, because Johann Kruger was a cantor. In fact, he was Paul Gerhard's cantor at one of the churches before he was removed, St. Mary's Kirche, I think, somewhere. Um, but Johann Kruger was the cantor, so he wrote the music, and then a lot of Paul Gerhard's hymns are actually set to Johann Kruger tunes, because the pastor at the church wrote the text, and gave them to the cantor and said, what do you think of these? And the cantor said, this is good, let me write a tune. And they became hymns. So Kruger publishes a book then in, yeah, here, oh yeah, here it is, 1653, called Praxis Pietatis Melica, which is the practice of piety in music or, or through song. Basically, 
Here are some hymns about living the Christian life. And this was one there. Uh, the original hymn had 16 stanzas. So, I mean, you look at some of the hymns in the LSB, if you thought 10 stanzas was bad, uh, it could have been a lot worse. Which is, of course, a joke, because the more stanzas, the better. We had a wedding hymn, Carolyn and I at our wedding, um, to the Philip Nikolai tune. It, Gerhard, it was a wedding hymn by Gerhard to the, uh, to the Gerhard tune, Wake Awake, and the, or, uh, the Nikolai, excuse me, tune, Wake Awake. And there were, I think, eight stanzas or something. And we talked about it. We said, well, I don't know. Do we want to split it up? And we looked at the text and we said, I don't know. The text is just so good. Now we'll keep it. And we just made everybody sing all eight stanzas. And it went on for, it was like a 15-minute hymn. But you know what? It was fun singing all those stanzas. Because, you know, the, as you sing it, you meditate on the text and it, and it works on you. It teaches you something. And you, the poetry of it is kind of nice if you're someone who, who likes or appreciates Poetry, you see how it's worded. Um, wordsmithing is something that's always really nice, which is one reason, too, why the translators deserve almost uh, as much, maybe even more respect than the original hymn writers, because it takes a lot more work to take a hymn in a different language, translate it into another language, put in rhyme, and put in poetry and meter, and still have it be really good. It takes more work to do that than just to sit down and compose the text of a hymn in the language that you know. John Wesley translated this one. Yeah, you're jumping the gun. <laughs> I was gonna try and keep that a secret as long as I could. <laughs> yeah, so, so this is where the, the text is, was first published, was in this uh, 16 stanzas in this book in 1653. Uh, one of the characteristics of Gerhard's hymnody that you'll see right here in this hymn is that he walks a line. This is one reason why I think he's a better hymn writer than Luther. Luther sits on one side of the line, which is everything is purely objective. These are the Holy Ten Commands. Vater unser, our Father who in heaven above. To Jordan came the Christ our Lord. This is what happened. This is what is. And Lutherans tend to, to be that way. It's, there's something objective and true, and it's going to work on you, and that's great, that's fine. Uh, then on the other side of the line is really pietism, and much of the John and Charles Wesley type hymnody, where it's all about me. I love the Lord, here's what I'm going to do for the Lord, I feel the Lord, I yearn to feel the Lord, I want to feel the Lord, Lord, where are you? Here you are, in the spirit around me. So there's those two different sides of this line. Now what Paul Gerhard does is walk the line and say, here's something objective and true, but also you're a Christian, so what... You, know, you it's okay for you to have some subjectivity and to say, Lord, please be with me. I yearn for you with the understanding that it's the voice of faith speaking and here's how you talk about the voice of faith and then here's how the voice. So he walks that line between pure objectivity and pure subjectivity and he takes the best parts of each and puts them in there, which is, I think, one reason why his hymnody really hits the heart in a way that Luther's doesn't quite and the way a lot of hymn writers just don't quite. Uh, 
So he, he walks that line. And then, yes, the common translation that we have of the German text was done by John Wesley. Uh, so, <laughs> I don't know, depending on what side of the line on Wesley you fall, either don't let that be a detriment to you or enjoy it because now you have something you can call your own, I guess. But uh, here's the thing about the Wesleys, okay? If you look in the back of the hymnal, you might find more Wesley than you realize is in here. It's not all bad. But a lot of it's actually pretty good. Um, mostly when he's translating somebody else. A lot of the original hymnody is not so great. Because, as I've said before, if you want to know what somebody believes, look at their hymnody. Uh, so, if your whole hymnal is full of original Charles or John Wesley, you might want to check out what that text says. But if he's doing translations of other things, well, that's, I mean, he's got something to work with and he's contained. And then he's a very good linguist, actually, a very good translator. Uh, the Wesley boys were not dumb. This is the problem. This is the problem. No matter what denomination you are affiliated with, it's the easiest thing in the world to look at somebody else and say, well, the person who founded that church was a real idiot. Or the person who wrote those hymns was really dumb. Because if they were smart, they wouldn't have done it. But you have to understand that they're not dumb. Some of the greatest heretics in church history were some of the smartest people the church had ever seen. So, uh, the Wesley boys were very smart, just somewhat misguided. Pastor? Yes. Uh, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness mm -hmm. was also translated by John Wesley. Mm -hmm. And that was one of Pastor Selmeyer's favorite hymns. We sang that a lot on Sunday morning. It's a good hymn. It's a good hymn. Yeah, so don't let. Don't be afraid just because you see names. Measure the, measure the quality of a hymn by what it says, not by who wrote it, not by who translated it. Um, there's, we have some hymns by t a guy named Timothy Dudley Smith, who is an Anglican, a bishop in the Anglican church. And some of them are good and others are not good. And you look at them, and you can't just judge them because Timothy Dudley Smith wrote them and say, well, he wrote us, I'm not going to sing this. Judge him by the worth of its text, by the worth of what it says. And secondly, by the worth of its tune, of course. I'm sort of nitpicky about tunes just because I'm a musician, but the tune isn't what matters. It's the text that matters. So judge a hymn not by the author, but by what it says. And if it's right and if it's good, then let it be that. Let it be right and good. Uh, John Wesley loved this hymn. He encountered it in Savannah, Georgia. And he published it under this name, Living by Christ from the German, in the hymnal, Hymns and Sacred Poems. Now, this is then when we're starting to get interesting. 
um, the tune that is in... <laughs> so this is why I have these three books, just for show and tell, okay? You know this. This is the TLH. Jesus, thy boundless love to me is in this hymnal with a or ever so slightly different text. Uh, but it's in here with a few more stanzas and that. But the tune is completely different. The tune is actually Vater Unser. Which is, we know, Our Father who from heaven above. Just the hymnic version of the Lord's Prayer. That's the tune in here that you would be familiar with if you, if you knew your TLH or if you grew up singing from that. This is the ELH, Evangelical Lutheran Hymnary. This is from the Norwegians. The Evangelical Lutheran Synod, the ELS, which if you don't know about the ELS, they're kind of a small synod up in Mankato. In fact, they might not be outside of Minnesota, but don't quote me on that because I don't exactly know, but they're, very, they're small. So they have this hymnal, which is a, a really, really good hymnal. Uh, there's a lot of really good hymns here that were from TLH that didn't make it into the LSB. A lot of new hymns that weren't in TLH, but are good, really old, like 16th and 15th century Lutheran hymns that are retained in here. So this is a really, really, really good book. If you like collecting hymnals, I don't know, maybe it's just me that does that. Uh, if, you, if you like collecting hymnals, this is one you have to buy. And let me know if you want one, because I can hook you up. I know where to get them. Okay? But anyway, so the hymn is also in this hymnal in the same form as it is in TLH. But the tune is completely different. In fact, I actually really hate the tune that they have in here, because it's sort of strange. I don't think it fits the text. I also don't think the tune in the TLH fits the text. Because if you're going to sing a hymn that is all about the love of Christ and how I want to follow Christ and how I pray that Christ would give me the strength to live the way that he would want, I don't really want to sing it like this. Jesus, thy boundless love to me, fill my heart with love for thee. You know, here's where the tune matters, because... It's a good tune, and I like it, and we have it in this hymnal, and it really fits the hymn that it was originally set to, and we should keep that. But for a hymn like this, I think, I think maybe we don't need to keep that kind of a tune. It sets a different mode and attitude for the hymn. You want the music to reflect the tone of the hymn, of the text, and to reinforce and strengthen it. Uh, and in this case, I don't know that it does. Now, there are a lot of really die-hard Lutheran TLH-only purists out there, even in my generation. This, that's not a slam. It's not a slam. <laughs> okay, okay. Right? There are a lot of people, they say the Lutheran Church never really existed until this book, and it was at its heyday with this book, and everything after this book was just trash. And uh, they hate the tune that, that it has in here, 
because it's not as good as, as what they think it's here. They don't think that this one is churchly. I even heard somebody say that the tune that is in here is like Porgy and Bess. And if I wanted to sing Gershwin, I'd go to Broadway. Uh, I think that's perhaps a little harsh. This is the only tune that I actually ever knew. And I think it fits the melody very well, or fits the text very well, actually. You get, it's easy to sing, but it also, you get the, kind of that Gerhard fatherly embrace. Come, come and let's sing a hymn together. Let me teach you what to say and what to think. Come here, we'll sit by the fire and I'll give you a nice hot chocolate and we'll just sit and sing a hymn together. That's, when I sing a Gerhard hymn, that's the feeling I want to have. Ah, Papa Gerhard is here, okay? So there's no one correct tune. I tried to find what the hymn was originally set to, and I couldn't. Maybe I didn't look hard enough, but I don't know what the original tune is. But this hymn is in lots of different hymnals, not only Lutheran, but a, a lot of Anglican hymnals too. So there are a lot of Anglican tunes to this. Uh, one of them is here in the ELH, and actually one of them's here in the LSB, an Anglican setting of the tune. This is by a fellow named Norman Cocker, who you probably have never heard of, and it doesn't matter, and you're probably never going to hear of him again after today. He was an organist uh, at Manchester Cathedral, and he basically had that job his, his whole life as an adult, and then he died. And he wrote a few organ things, and he composed a few tunes, one of which is this one. This tune is called Ryburn. He composed that tune. And other than that, nothing. Just played the organ. Relatively unremarkable story behind this fellow, but this is a good, this is a good tune. The, this hymn is also in a lot of Methodist hymnals. Of course, why? Because Wesley loved it so much. So now it's been ingrained into the Methodist canon of hymnody, so we've got a foothold in. Now we just have to bring the rest of the horse inside. <laughs> That's just a joke. Just let them be. <laughs> let them enjoy our good hymnody. And we can just raise our glass to them and say, hey, you're welcome. <laughs> have fun. Very good. So with our last little bit of time here, now, yeah, we never get to the text. I still write it all out for you, though. You, so you can see here, there's three columns. Of course, one of them is my commentary for you. Uh, this one, there's the TLH and the ELH version. And then the other column in the middle is the LSB version. So that's the one that we have. So you can look at that and you can see which stanzas we don't have of the original seven. I don't know why the hymnals, I don't think TLH was afraid of having lots and lots and lots of stanzas for some of those old hymns. Um, but for some reason, they only kept seven of this hymn. And then it was whittled down to four for the LSB. So I don't know what happened to the other nine, but these are the ones that, that have been preserved. So you can see which stanzas the LSB omitted versus what you would remember if you knew this hymn from the TLH uh, and what you would find in the ELH hymnal. 
And then if it's bold there in the LSB, there's only one instance right on the first page in stanza one, there's a translation difference. And actually it's not a translation difference, they just altered the TLH text. Now I do have a bone to pick with this that I will let you in on. I don't have a problem with saying unite my thankful heart to thee instead of unite my thankful heart with thee. I I'm not going to make mountains out of molehills there. I think it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. The point of the hymn still comes through. But this is a pretty big difference. To thee alone, dear Lord, I live. Myself to thee, dear Lord, I give. That versus thine holy, thine alone I am. Be thou alone my constant flame. It sounds kind of nice. Thine holy, thine alone I am. Okay, that's great. Be thou alone my constant flame. Okay, I mean, I sort of get what is being said. But there's, it's not as good as to thee alone, dear Lord, I give myself to thee, dear Lord, or excuse me, to thee alone, dear Lord, I live myself to thee, dear Lord, I give. There's something really nice about that. And I think that Lutherans over time have gotten more and more afraid of the first person. You don't want to talk about me or I uh, in the sense that I could do something for the Lord. And you don't really do anything worthwhile for the Lord, but, I mean, you still want to strive after him, don't you? And you still pray that, Lord, give me the strength to follow you and to give myself to you, that I would reject temptations, run away from evil, and strive toward... I mean, that's still your prayer, which is what this is. To thee alone, dear Lord, I live. Don't let me live to anything else but you, and let me give myself only to you and not to any idol. I mean, there's, you get the sense of relationship here. That a husband and a wife don't give each other to anyone but each other. That there is this intimate union between the two. And so it is with Christ and his bride, the church. And you're a part of the church. The language of the Old Testament is all relational language. When Israel goes astray and seeks other idols, what does the Lord call it? My people are adulterous. My people have practiced harlotry. It's not idolatry. It's harlotry. It's adultery. Because seeking a relationship away from the Lord is breaking the intimacy of that union. So to the Lord, idolatry is adultery because you're seeking after somebody else. So it's okay to say, I give myself to thee or to pray for the strength in continuing to do it. The LSB translation is, or modifications are fine. They just don't quite have the oomph that you would want. And it's only in this one stanza. The rest are the same. So anyway, think about that. You have this. You can look at the rest of the stanzas. You can take them home. Let's sing this hymn. So for Sundays, we'll just do stanza one and four. But because this is the hymn Sunday, We'll sing all four stanzas, and the way we'll do this is like this. I'll give you the tune. I will sing the first stanza, and then you will all join in, and we'll sing stanzas two, three, and four. Okay?
So just like how we typically do. And if you don't have a hymnal, by the way, the text of the hymn you can follow on your sheet and you can just listen to the tune. Da 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 Okay, I'll sing the first stanza. <laughs> Jesus, thy boundless love to me, no thought can reach, no tongue declare. Unite my thankful heart to thee, and reign without our rival there. Thine holy, thine alone I am, be thou alone my constant flame. All right, stanzas two through four. O grant that nothing in my soul May dwell but thy pure love alone. O may thy love possess me whole, My joy, my treasure, and my crown. All coldness from my heart remove, my every act, word, thought, beloved. This love unwearied I pursue, and dauntlessly to thee aspire. Oh, may thy love my hope renew, Burn in my soul like heavenly fire, and day and night be all my care to guard this sacred treasure there. In suffering be thy love my peace. In weakness be thy love my power. And when the storms of life shall cease, O Jesus, in that final hour, be thou my rod and staff and guide, and draw me safely to thy side. Very good. We'll see you at the high altar.